You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. We are back into Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And if you were around last fall, um, we started a set of sermons through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We made it through seven of the eight Beatitudes uh, last fall. Uh, Then we had to uh, jump out of that for a while as we moved into this building and and all that. And then Ryan just uh, jumped back into the last Beatitude uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so now we are firmly back into this set of sermons. And uh, and then we're going to be kind of for the rest of the spring uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. And so in light of that, I wanted to take a moment to uh, remind you of why it is that we chose this section of Scripture for this season in the life of our church. Why? Why these particular three chapters of the Bible? And there's a lot I could say, but let me just give you a couple of them. One is that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these particular chapters of the Bible, have a way of bringing us face-to-face with Jesus. So this is a sermon, but it's a unique sermon, these three chapters, because God is preaching it. Uh, God God the Son, Jesus, is the preacher of the sermon. So, So in that way, it is as if Jesus pulls a chair up in front of us, and he sits down in it, and he looks at us. He speaks to it. It's, it's Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Gospels. Uh, you know, it was interesting. A few months ago, I sat down with a new couple to our church family. And, uh, and they were talking about their first Sunday at Stonegate. And, uh, you know, they had mentioned that they were just so warmly welcomed, that they so appreciated. And uh, that, uh, that the context was just so uh, good for them. And then they sat down and they said something really surprising happened during the service. It felt like we met Jesus face to face. And I, just hearing that, I'm like, thank God for that. That's such a miracle. Human beings can't produce that. Only the, the Spirit of God can. Um, but in a lot of ways, I feel like when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus does for us. He pulls up that chair, he sits down in front of us, and he looks at us face to face. We get to hear from Jesus. So I love that. It puts us face to face with Jesus. Another reason for this particular section of the scriptures is because it is one of the richest parts of the Bible. I just love these three chapters. I think if you're going to memorize three chapters of the Bible, this would be a good three chapters to memorize. It's one of the richest and ready-to-enjoy sections of the Bible. Listen to Thomas Watson. He was an old Puritan pastor. Listen to him comment on these three chapters. He said, in this portion of Holy Scripture, you have a summary of true religion. Like, if you want to just condense down a lot of the Bible into three chapters, these three chapters have a way of doing that. You have a summary of true religion. The Bible epitomized. Here, and look at the imagery that he uses. Here is a garden of delight where you may pluck those flowers which will deck the hidden man of your heart. Here is the golden key which will open the gate of paradise. Here is the conduit of the gospel, running wine to nourish such as our, our poor in spirit and, and pure of heart. Here is the rich cabinet wherein the pearl of blessedness is locked up. Here is the golden pot holding manna which will feed and revive the soul unto everlasting life. And, I, you know, I hope as we have journeyed through the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount uh, back in the fall, and now as we look forward to, to working through the rest of it, one of my prayers for us as the church family is we would come with hearts open to Jesus, ready to enjoy Him over His Word. That, that we would be open-hearted, ready to consider, ready to think it out, uh, ready to say yes to whatever it is Jesus asks of us, ready to go to Jesus for all the help we need to say yes 
It's a section of scripture that is just so set before us to do that. It's a rich section of the scriptures. And thirdly, and this will kind of take us into where we're going this morning, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm thinking in particular the Beatitudes, that those first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, it addresses us at the level of culture, at the level of culture. Now, I want to just take a minute to explain that. Everything in the Christian life starts with doctrine. Doctrine is a good thing. It's the foundational thing. Everything in the Christian life starts with doctrine. And to be even maybe more precise, we could say gospel doctrine. It starts with the good news of Jesus. And really, there's no news like the good news of Jesus, that a, that a holy God would look upon broken and rebellious sinners like you and me. And rather than crushing us in our sin, crushing us with his wrath, that God the Son would come for us. He lived perfectly in our place, his life for our life. He, he died upon a cross that fateful Friday a couple of thousand years ago where, where he was crushed for our sin, pulverized, broken to pieces in our place on the cross, risen from the dead on the third day. So that now all those who will turn to Jesus in faith, all of those who, who will come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, knowing that the only thing we're bringing to Jesus is our need, our need for rescue and salvation. That's what we're bringing to Jesus. So that all those who come with, with the empty hands of faith can be rescued from the wrath of God, and even more importantly, rescued into the family of God. So that now and forever, God the Father will look at us as, as sons and daughters. This is the good news of Jesus. It's It's amazing. That, that is an amazing thing that God would deal with re, his rebellious creation like that. Th this is gospel doctrine. One of the ways we summarize that often is that we're all idiots. That's the humbling part. Got to embrace that piece first. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. That, that is the good news of Jesus. If you're not in on that today, here's the great news of Jesus. You can get in on that today. The incredibly bright future that Jesus offers. It all starts with gospel doctrine. And that gospel doctrine should then create a gospel culture called the church. Gospel doctrine should be pressed down and then ooze out and create a gospel culture called the church where this incredibly great doctrine, the good news of Jesus, can be experienced and celebrated and enjoyed. Gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. Now, when we say the word culture, all, all I mean by that, a culture is just what most of us do most of the time. And, and gospel doctrine should create a culture where most of what we do most of the time is reflecting that beautiful doctrine. Gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. Doctrine is what we, what we believe where culture is how we live. And, and what we believe should be influencing and creating a certain culture, a certain way that we're living. So, so think of it this way. The doctrine of grace should produce a culture of grace. The doctrine of forgiveness and mercy and hope should create a culture of forgiveness and mercy and hope. So gospel doctrine. One way you could summarize gospel doctrine is unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. That, that's gospel doctrine. If you're in Christ, that's what's happened to you. Unspeakably great things have happened to unspeakably bad people. And, and that gospel doctrine should then create a gospel culture called the church where unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. 
Like that should be the, the, the ethos and the feel and the vibe and, and what you experience in a church. That, that beautiful doctrine creating that sort of beautiful culture. But here's the problem. This is what we've got to be leery of and aware of. We can't just assume that because we hold beautiful doctrine that we have a gospel culture. We can't assume that. That would be wrong to assume that just because you hold gospel doctrine that you have a gospel culture. We need to examine it. We need to take the time to consider it. And here's why that's so important that we take time to consider it. When, when a church has right doctrine, but they also have a wrong culture, so, so right doctrine plus wrong culture, that still equals a denial of the gospel. I just, that should sober us to know that we can, we can hold to the right sort of teaching and believe the right things, but yet be embracing a wrong culture, a wrong way of living, and that equals, when a church does that, a denial of the very good news of Jesus. It, it is possible, even likely, that, that over time a church can unsay in their culture what they're saying in their doctrine. Now, isn't that a scary thing to think about? Churches do that all the time. You just look back in church history and you'll see it all over the place. We can unsay in our culture what we're saying with our doctrine. It's, it's possible for churches to hold right theology while living wrong lives. That those two things can go together in all the, the uncomfortable ways that you see. So, so as a church, we want both, don't we? We want both great doctrine and we want a great culture a, a doctrine that reflects the good news of Jesus and a culture that reflects the good news of Jesus and my friend Ray Ortland he says in his little book on gospel culture he says it like this the test of a gospel-centered church we want to be a gospel-centered church don't we that's what we want the, the test of a gospel-centered church isn't just its doctrine on paper you to, to see if a church is gospel-centered you can't just look at their statement of belief he, he says it's not just that. It's both doctrine on paper plus it's culture in practice. It, it's a both and. And we want the both and. We want both great gospel doctrine and a great gospel culture. We want both. We need both. The world needs both. And Raitlin goes on to say, and here is what the Bible and church history show us. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. Amen to that, right? That, that's the sort of church we want to be. That, that's what we're after. Now, that is a good just grid now to, to think about the Beatitudes in. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and, and just go one chapter back to Matthew uh, chapter 4 first. If you have the, the English Standard Version, which is what, what we kind of preach out of here, if you have that uh, translation of the Bible, look over verse 12 and you'll see this heading. The heading over Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, says Jesus begins his ministry. Then if you look down at verse 17, you're going to see the core of what he is preaching in his ministry, the core message of his ministry. In verse 17 of Matthew 4, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Now you're about to hear a one-sentence summary of the sermon. It isn't the only thing Jesus said, it's just the summary of what Jesus says. He began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus starts his ministry, and he comes announcing there is a new kingdom. Uh, the king is here, and the king is bringing a new kingdom. He is making a new kingdom. 
or a new kind of community. And then he goes on to say that there is a way into this new community, that this new kingdom. And the gate to come into, that the door through which you have to enter to come into this new community or into this kingdom is repentance. It's turning from how you see and what you think to what Jesus sees and what he thinks. So, so the door in is repentance. So new kingdom, and here's the way in repentance. Now ask yourself the question, what are you expecting Jesus to do next? I mean, what would you do next if you were him? He, here is what I'm expecting Jesus to do next. I'm expecting Jesus to lay down gospel doctrine. He's just announced there's a new kingdom. Here's the way in. And now tell us, tell us the teachings of the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus does next. But when you turn to Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses of his biggest and most expansive sermon don't address us at the level of doctrine. They, they address us at the level of culture. Jesus comes in and says, yep, the new kingdom's here. Uh, here's the way into that kingdom. And, and then he says, now let me tell you what life in that kingdom is going to feel like, what, what it's going to look like. Let, let me give you the ethos and the vibe of life with me in my kingdom. Or you could think of it this way. He is saying, here is what true, authentic, right, faithful Christianity looks like. That's the Beatitudes. So what I want to do today is I want to take just a look back over the Beatitudes. We've spent, uh, back in the fall, we've spent uh, seven weeks working through them. Ryan picked up the last one a few weeks ago. And I just want to do one kind of like, let's just take one good look in the rearview mirror of where we've come from. And then we're going to get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the upcoming weeks. So I want to just take a look back. And I want to do that by answering two questions. The first question is, what does Jesus mean by the word blessed? Well, what does he mean by that? And the second question is, well, what does a gospel culture look like? What, what does it look like? Like in action, what, what, what is and what does it feel like to be, to be in the midst of a gospel culture? So first, what does Jesus mean by the word blessed? One of the unifying uh, sort of attributes of the Beatitudes, the, these eight sort of statements that Jesus makes in the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, is that they all start with blessed are. That's how each of them start. But blessed are, and then it goes into that particular character quality or attribute that Jesus is after. So to untie this passage, we've got to untie what does that word blessed mean? What is Jesus saying in that word? And sometimes the easiest way to get a sense of what something means is to think about its opposite. So if blessed is the positive, the negative of that word would be, uh, maybe you could think of it as cursed, something along those lines. So, so what does the word cursed mean? Uh, to be cursed means to be cut off from God. It means, it means God forsakenness. It means ruin. It means emptiness. Those are the sort of things that flow down and out of that word cursed. And when you put that beside the word blessed, you begin to get a sense of like what the word blessed means. So, so think about the positive now. If cursed means God forsakenness, then to be blessed means God withness. If to be cursed means to be cut off from God, to be blessed means to be joined to God. If cursed means ruin for a human being, to be blessed means renewal and, and revival in the heart of a human being. If cursed means emptiness, then to be blessed means fullness. It means that as a human being, to be blessed, you're, you're flourishing You've got this enduring happiness and hope in your heart. That's the idea of being blessed. You're flourishing as a person, 
As a, as a human being created in the image of God, you're flourishing. There's this enduring happiness and hopefulness in you. Now, th- that word, blessed, the, the world's after that. We're after that. Every human being is after that. Just th- think about that longing for a moment, for, for that word, blessed. We all want it. We're all living for it. We might be unaware of it when we wake up in the morning, but the desire for that word to, to be blessed, to be, to, to be flourishing as a human being for that enduring happiness, that, that's what got you up out of bed this morning. That's what gets you up out of bed tomorrow. That's what gets you to work. That's what, underneath all human doing is this desire and this want to be blessed. So if if that's true, one of the most important questions that we can consider, one of the most important questions we can answer is, what what are we depending on to secure that that sort of flourishing that we want, that sort of happiness, that sort of being blessed that we want? What, What are we banking on in our life? What are we looking at in our life right now and saying, this is how I'm gonna get it. That this is, this is how I'm gonna secure that sort of blessing, that, that, that sort of human flourishing and joy and happiness that I want. You might not have ever thought about your answer to that question. What, what am I banking on for it? But you're living an answer to it. But part of what it means to be a human being is you can't live without looking at something and saying, that's where I'm gonna get my satisfaction. That's where I'm gonna get my joy. That's where I'm gonna get that enduring happiness. That's what I'm gonna depend on to flourish as a human being. We're all doing that. Our life is profoundly shaped by the answer to that question. What are we banking on for for that, that, that happiness and human flourishing? And generally, there are two ways that you can pursue it. There's two different roads you can go on uh, to, to get it. Broadly speaking, there is the way of God expressed in the Beatitudes, and there's the way of the world expressed in what you might think of as the anti-Beatitudes. Jesus isn't the only one making disciples, right? Our culture does a wonderful job at making disciples. Every time you turn on the TV and watch it, the culture is making disciples. It's saying something. It's teaching something. It is embedding things into your heart. You can't live a second in this world without the culture around you teaching you, embedding things into you, forming you, right? The world has a way of approaching happiness. It has a way of trying to secure happiness described in the anti-Beatitudes, Again, Ray Ortland describes these anti-beatitudes this way. Listen to this. Here's the world's way of, of securing happiness. How am I going to get happiness? How am I going to secure my, my flourishing? Here's how. Blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, not the meek, but the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. Now that's a, that's a simple summary of the world's way of getting human flourishing. That that's, that's the world's road that they're, they're going after to try to secure that deep sense of happiness. But Jesus offers another way, and it's a surprising way. It's an unexpected road to get to human flourishing and to get to happiness. But Jesus is saying, here is the way to human flourishing. This is the road. It's, it's the, it's, it's a definite article. It's, it's the only road you can go down to get to human flourishing. And here it is. Poverty of spirit, 
those who mourn over their sin, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the, the persecuted. Now, I just read that list and I'm like, seriously, Jesus? Are we, are we that, that's the road to human flourishing? That, that, that's the way to it? And Jesus is looking at us in the Beatitudes and saying, yes, that is the only road to human flourishing. Jesus is looking at us and trying to convince us that valleys really do fill first. That this is the way of Jesus, that if you want blessing, human flourishing, fullness, that deep, durable delight in God, this is the way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, maybe the best preacher of the last century, he said it this way when commenting on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount says, if you really want to be happy, and every human being says yes to that, every single human being wants that, if you really want to be happy, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, here is the way. Here's the way. Come and get it. That This is the road that leads to human flourishing. Second question. What does a gospel culture look like? What does a gospel culture look like? So here's what I'm going to do. Over the next couple of minutes, I'm going to just run through the Beatitudes. There's eight of them. That's a lot. Right? So there's a lot going to be coming at you in the next few minutes. And I want to encourage you to do this. Rather than thinking in the totality of all eight, just ask the Lord to show you one. What is the one beatitude that I need to take a step toward? What is, what is the one beatitude? What's the one kind of aspect of a gospel culture that I need to embrace and I need to take a step toward displaying that particular attribute of a gospel culture? What's the one? So just think about that. What is the one thing Jesus would want me to hear today? What does a gospel culture look like? Well, the Beatitudes answer the question. So starting in verse 3, here's the first piece of a gospel culture. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first Beatitude, in a lot of ways, is the key to everything that follows. If you don't get the first one, you're not going to have Beatitude 2 through 8. It's the key to all that follows. In a lot of ways, it's the key to the Christian life. It is one of those foundational Um, attributes of a Christian that the deeper it sinks down, the more everything else becomes possible in the Christian life. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means that we have a living, breathing awareness of our bankruptcy before God. That we have a living, breathing, it's like it's alive, like we know that we are bankrupt before God in virtually every way. Uh, To be poor in spirit means that, that we know that all we bring to God is our need. It's this posture before God. It's, it's the opposite of, of pride. It's coming to God knowing that we are weak and needy and that God has everything. That, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And, and this really introduces like one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. This is like the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Those who believe they have something get nothing from God. Isn't that ironic? People who come to God and, and deep down they really think like this, God, if you had like a draft, like if, if, you were, if you had everybody in a draft and you were just picking teams, God, you would definitely want me up at the top of that list. People who come to God like that, really thinking they have something to offer God, are the very ones who get nothing from God. But on the other hand, those who know they have nothing, those are the very people who get everything from God. 
I mean, this is what the Bible continually shows us, is that the grace of God flows downhill. It flows away from those who think they have and toward those who know they have not. If you just read the Gospels and watch Jesus, here's one of the things you'll notice. His heart, like a gravitational pull, is attracted to and moves toward those who embrace their weakness, who own their own emptiness, who offer him their need. Just, I mean, a gravitational pull, it just, he moves toward them. And and periodically people will ask me, um, what do you think your biggest problem is? Your biggest problem. And uh, every time I answer that question, it's always something similar. Um, I always say my own self-sufficiency. That, that it is so hard for me to stay just on a daily level, on a moment-by-moment level connected to reality. It, it's so hard for me to actually, like on a moment-by-moment level, feel my need like I want to feel it. Like when, when I watched Jesus address the church in Laodicea in, in Revelation chapter 3, I empathize with them. I'm like, I, I can see myself in them. And this is what he says to them. If you remember, in, in Revelation 3, verse 17, he comes to them and he dresses them not on the level of doctrine, but on the level of culture. And he looks at them and says, for you say, church in Laodicea, here's the culture of your church. For, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I'm just self-sufficient. God, we like you, we, we love you, but we're doing okay and we'll let you know when we need you. We'll get back to you in a little while. That, 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 that's their posture. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But Jesus addresses them at the level of culture, and he says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, now think about those words, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those words don't just describe some of God's children. They describe all of us, every one of us. And being poor in spirit means that we have stopped running from those words, but we have stopped trying to be something different of those words, but we actually are like back in touch with reality. We face that that that's us. We've actually got this living, breathing awareness of our bankruptcy before God, our, our helplessness before God, our need before God. Maybe you could ask yourself the question this morning, do you feel weak and needy? Do you feel that this morning? And if your answer is yes to that, here is the wonderful news for you. If if your answer is yes to that, to everyone embracing their weakness and their neediness and their emptiness, God, God looks at you this morning and says, well, great, finally. Now here's all my might and provision. Here's now everything you need. But for any of us who, who come to God with empty hands, knowing our need, God is like, finally, you're st- you've stopped trying to give me something and you've come to me with nothing and now I can put my everything into your hands. That poverty of spirit. Happiness really does start at the bottom, all the way down at poverty of spirit. Here's the next one, the second one. It's in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, my instant question is, mourn what? 
What, what are we supposed to be mourning? And I think the context helped. Beatitude 1 and 2 are connected. They go together. So Beatitude 1 is poor in spirit, that, that we've got this living, breathing awareness of our, of our bankruptcy before God, of our depravity, of, of even the best things that we do are still shot through with sin, that remaining sin is still in us to that, to that degree. Now that informs how we would read the second one. Now, now what are we mourning? Beatitude number two, blessed are those who mourn. This is that sort of emotive response that flows from the awareness of our sinfulness, of our moral bankruptcy before God. It's we're mourning over our sin. It's interesting. There's nine words that Jesus had. Whoa, I'm back. There's nine words that Jesus had to choose from um, in terms of the intensity of the mourning, ranging from sadness to deep anguish. And the word that he chose is, is the, is, has the most intensity around it. So, so Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who have like a general sadness in their life. It's no, blessed are those who have this soul-shaking grief and anguish over their sin. That Jesus is looking at us and saying, Here, here's a gospel culture. Here's, here's the road to happiness. Happy are the brokenhearted over sin that can actually mourn their sin. Now, I agree with Thomas Watson, uh, the old Puritan pastor, when he says, mourning is put here for repentance. In other words, mourning is a shorthand for genuine, authentic repentance before God. So I just want to ask you the question. When you think about your life, when is the last time you have mourned over repenting of your sin? Not, not mourning over the sin that's out there, but the sin that's in here. When's the last time that's happened? Has that ever happened for you? It's not an uncommon occurrence in our house for Laura to gather our kids around and for her to have a moment where she just through tears owns what she sees in her and what she doesn't see in her and repents in front of our kids. And every time I see that, I'm like, that is a gospel culture. That, that, that is what Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead to create and empower in his sons and daughters. It's that sort of mourning and owning and repenting of sin. That, that's a gospel culture. You know, when you think about um, what it means to be a healthy person, a healthy Christian, to be spiritually healthy, I think one of the, the best tests that you can give yourself is just to ask yourself, do I, do I rejoice over the things that thrill the heart of God? And do I and can I mourn over the things that grieve his heart? And this is what this beatitude is, is, is walking us into. When you look in the mirror, do you have moments of just heartbrokenness over what you see there? Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. And for, all, for everyone that can mourn, Jesus is saying, great, finally, now comfort is on the way. N now it's coming. Here's the third beatitude in, in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now that is a notoriously hard word to define. So, so what is that? that? Meekness has this relational dimension to it. It's a posture, it's a way of interacting with both God and man. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. Meekness is what happens when a person, when a human being goes down into the valley, into the valley of brokenness, into the, into the valley of poverty of spirit. 
And when they get down there and then they feel their own moral bankruptcy and then they mourn over it. I mean, they just, they just weep over what they see and what they don't see. And it's that heart that's got th- those two, those first two Beatitudes working in them. And it's that heart when, it, when those two things erupt in them and then flow up to God and out to man, th- that, is what, that is what meekness is. It's the new posture that's created when we've experienced Beatitude 1 and Beatitude 2. When you think about meekness, it's hard to like summarize in a pithy short phrase. I oftentimes think of it as a constellation or a combination of these three sort of attributes. You, you take humility, you take gentleness, and you take patience, and, and you, you put them all in one ball, and now you've got meekness. It's those three things together, humility, gentleness, and patience. And can we all just agree, our world really has no place for those three attributes? Our world has no place for humility, gentleness, or patience. I mean, if you just think about what life is for us as we just live it out there, it feels like what life is is just survival of the fittest, right? I mean, we live in a tense, harsh, trigger-happy world. That's the world that you live in and that I live in. And we're discipled by that world. And this is why we all know what to do when we don't get our way. And what do we do? We scream harder or louder and punch harder. I mean, that's just kind of the human default. This is, this is what we do when we don't get our way. We scream and we punch until we do get our way, right? And that's the opposite of meekness. I mean, that, that anti-beatitude, blessed are the pushy for they win, is what our culture disciples us to believe, that, 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 that is the, the accepted sort of business practice that, that, is, that is just kind of adopted by the world at large. But listen to John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, as he pushes back on that sort of accepted business practice. John Newton shows the problem with that. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversaries? So you've got a, a, a person that's giving you a hard time. You've got something that's got to be done. What, what's it going to profit a man if he gains his cause, if he, if he goes and gets what he's, what he's after, and he silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? Is it really worth losing that? If you scream, if you push, if you climb over and you step on others, you may find what you're after, but you'll never find Jesus there. Because that's just not where Jesus is. That's just not where he is. Blessed are the meek. Then you have your fourth beatitude. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When Jesus is is addressing us at the level of culture, he doesn't just address us at the level of action. He also addresses us at the level of affection, at both our doing and our desiring. So, So look at what he says here. He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. That's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, so what does a gospel culture feel like? When you, when you walk into a, a, a church, a, a culture, a gospel culture, what should that feel like? Jesus is saying, this is what it should feel like. It should feel like people who want, like not just kind of want, 
but desperately want, continually want to be transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what a gospel culture feels like. Like I, I need Jesus to break through, not in a year from now, in a month from now, but like right now to make some obedience possible in my life. Like I, I, I want more of Jesus. I, I want and I need Jesus to come on in and produce things in me that I can't produce on my own. I, I, I need that. That is a gospel culture. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There is nothing more dangerous in your life and in my life than a lethargic heart. A heart that is numb to the wonder and the reality of Jesus. That there's nothing more dangerous in our life than that. A heart with no affections for God. But for everyone this morning who's just saying, even if you're just saying, God, I want to want that. Jesus is looking at you and saying, great. Now you're on the way to satisfaction. That, that, that's, that's the very person I'll satisfy. Then you have the fifth beatitude in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Here is gospel doctrine. In Christ, you have been treated much better than you deserve. That, that's, that's the good news of Jesus. In, in Christ, you have been treated so much better than you deserve. Now, here is a gospel culture. Now, after experiencing that and living in that, now I'll treat others much better than they deserve. That, that's a gospel culture. And this is the heart of what it means to, to be merciful. It's realizing the incredible mercy God has bestowed upon us and, and then that mercy that we've received vertically from God oozing out of our life and just covering every person that we interact with out there. That's what it means to be merciful. And this is, this is what a gospel culture looks like. This is what Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead to make us a merciful, compassionate person. And, and mercy is a really powerful thing. Just think about this for a moment. If, if this afternoon you were to do something that absolutely shipwrecked your life, you, you were to sin in such a way that even shocked you, that just, it just left your life in a mound of ashes. Now, now think about if you did that this afternoon, who is the first person you would call? Just think about that name for a moment. Who's the first person you would call? I don't know who that person is for you, but I know what that person is like. I don't know their name, but I know this about them. They're merciful. They're merciful. Because that's who you think of in that moment. That's who you want to call in that moment. That's who's attractive in that moment. And God has, has lived and died and rose from the dead to make his church merciful. So that when people's lives blow up, the church is actually attractive to them. But blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then you've got the sixth beatitude. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. This isn't an outward purity. The, the Pharisees looked great, but they wouldn't be noticed for it. And that's not purity of heart. That's hypocrisy. It, it's, it's purity in heart, like deep down. It's an inward reality. It's, it's the real you where it really counts. It's purity deep down there. I mean, part of what th this particular beatitude is showing us is that it's not what you appear to be that matters most, but what you actually are. God is not impressed by what we appear to be because Jesus sees through our appearances. 
our facades, the masks that we work so hard to present to others. He sees through all of that, down into the, the core of us. And a pure heart is an undivided heart. It's a heart that says, there's Jesus and there's everything else and I'll take Jesus. I love how one person put it. He said, purity of heart is to want one thing. And that one thing is Jesus. So just ask yourself the question, what do I want more than anything else in the world? What is that? Purity of heart, a gospel culture is a group of people saying, more than anything else in the world, I want Jesus. That's purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the seventh beatitude, the peacemakers. Blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The prevailing mood in our culture is angry, it's tense. I mean, you just have to, like, be awake in a day for, like, three seconds before you're going to encounter hostility of some kind. Hostility is ever-present in our world, which makes peacemakers so needed in our broken world. So needed. And when it comes to conflict, you can find yourself in one of three places. You may be a peace breaker. And a peace breaker is the person who, when conflict happens, they run to the tension. But they don't run to the tension for the sake of peace. They run to the conflict. They run to the tension for the sake of payment. They, they are ready to get their pound of flesh out of this moment. That's a peace breaker. For others, we can be peace fakers. This is the more passive-aggressive approach. When, when someone hurts us, we, we say, no, you're going to pay for it. You're definitely going to pay for it. But rather than running to them to make them pay for it, we, we have this way of retreating from them, retreating emotionally, relationally, physically. Conflict has a way of closing us up. We run from the tension in an effort to make them pay. Or you can be a peacemaker, a peacemaker. A peacemaker doesn't fake peace. They don't break peace, but they go out of their way as far as it depends on them to make peace. When sinned against, they don't, they don't run from them to make them pay. They don't run to them to make them pay. A peacemaker runs to them so they can aggressively give grace to them, aggressively make peace. That's a peacemaker. So just look at your life. Think about your life right now. Where are you har harboring grudges and resentments? Where has the root of bitterness begun to grow and deepen in your life? A gospel culture are those who, who are aware of that and they move toward those moments to be a peacemaker. As far as it depends on you to, to make peace in those moments. And lastly, in verse 10, what does a gospel culture look like? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, that is a shocking conclusion for me. That is not what I'm expecting to hear, to kind of finish the Beatitudes off. I'm expecting at the end of all that, for someone who's living like that, poverty of spirit, mourning over their sin, they're meek, they're peacemakers, a purity of heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'm expecting to get to the end and the last one to be, and the world's going to love you for that. Man, the world's just going to roll out the red carpet and your life's going to be awesome. But, but Jesus is saying, that, no, that's not what you should expect. That's not going to be the way that it happens. Rather than the red carpet, you can expect persecution, difficulty, hardship, 
Jesus is clarifying that life with me is going to be difficult. Obedience is going to be costly. My path, this road to human flourishing and to that deep, enduring happiness is going to be, it's going to be painful. But the tone is encouragement. Jesus is looking at us and saying, I know it's going to be painful. I, I know that. But, but hang in there. Because if you'll just hang in there, if you'll, if you'll stay on that road, enduring the cost, enduring the pain of that road, there's going to be a moment where you can't contain the amount of human flourishing that's going to break over your head. You won't be able to contain that, that sort of blessing that's going to break over you. Now, with that said, I want you just to bow your head there where you are. And I want you to, to take a moment to ask Jesus... What is it that I need to embrace this morning so that more of this beautiful gospel doctrine could, could be shaping me into a person and us into a church where we get to live this sort of beautiful gospel culture? What's the step that Jesus would have me take? And remember, in Matthew 4, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarifies, here's the summary statement. The king is here. And repentance is needed. Repentance is needed. It's, it's not just the way we enter the kingdom of God, it's also the way we make progress through the kingdom of God. So in what area of your life this morning do you just need to be able to mourn and weep over your sin? Knowing that gospel doctrine promises us God will meet you in that morning with mercy, with grace, with help, with the empowerment of the Spirit, with encouragement, with refreshment, that God will meet you right there with all of that. And for some this morning, our first step is a decisive step toward Jesus. We have been kicking the tires. We've been thinking upon this for a while. We've been considering Jesus. And God has arranged this moment on this particular morning in this particular place to be that moment where you take that decisive leap toward Jesus. But when you turn from your sin that you know disqualifies you and you turn from all the good things that somehow you think qualify you before God and then you turn to God with the empty hands of faith saying to God, I'm bringing nothing but my need, nothing but my need for rescue and redemption and God, I am trusting in the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. Save me, rescue me. And if that's you, that's your step today. You can just, there where you are, say that to God. Express that from your heart to God. So, oh God, would you help us this morning? Would you show us? Would you show us what it is that you would want from us? Would you show us what we need to receive from this passage straight from your lips this morning? Oh God, would you do that?
And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.